This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here by myself, and I'm going to keep it quick today because I want to introduce two interviews you're going to hear from two of our Vanity Fair colleagues. First up, you'll hear Johanna Desta, a writer at Vanity Fair and a frequent guest on the show, talking to Jesus and Marrow, the hosts of the talk show Jesus and Marrow, also Writers Guild of America Award winners for Best Comedy Variety Talk Series for this show. And then after that, there'll be a brief break, and you'll hear... From Julie Miller, who talks to Jason Bateman about the final season of Ozark. He's an Emmy winner for directing for Ozark, and he had a huge hand in creating and starring in the show as well and has lots to say about how that Netflix series wrapped up. So let's go ahead and get to both of those interviews. The Run Through Evoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We were just talking about this before we started recording, but it was both of your birthdays recently, so I got to say happy birthday officially yeah. on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Another rotation around the sun. Yes. How did you guys celebrate? 
Oh, I went out to BBQs with some friends, and then we ended up at karaoke. And then around 4 a.m., I was like, yo, I have to record a show tomorrow. So <laughs> that was <laughs> that was my night. And if you hear I don't really have a voice, that is the reason why. I, I'm very similarly, mm-hmm. but God bless me. And like the calendar fell on the day that we did not have to record. So I went out to Locksmith, shout out to Locksmith, and got absolutely, I time traveled. You know what I'm saying? I time traveled, <laughs> got home safely. Well, congratulations to both of you. Happy birthday. And, and Rihanna's baby is following in your footsteps, which we love. Shout out to the Shout baby. Out. You're... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What do you think they're going to, what do you think they're going to name the baby? If you had to guess. Ooh, oh, man. Ace uh, baby? Maybe to keep with Rihanna's uh, roots, maybe young flying fish. Something like that, you know, something oh. delicious. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Of course, something delicious. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. We love that. That's what the baby deserves. Little conch. Everyone loves. A, everyone does love. Everyone loves a delicious baby. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. <laughs> Might be a hot take. You know, we're gonna we're gonna leave you on the island of that thought. Uh, but I love that you said that. <laughs> Let's talk about the reason why we're here. Jesus Samiro, the amazing, illustrious late night show. Uh, I want to, I have so many, so many questions. I love the show. I've been a fan for a long time since Let's before go. before Showtime. So. I want to talk, you know, you're in this season now. You've been doing it for a while. What was something that you were really excited to do going into the season or something that was on your mind when you were crafting this season? I think we really, when we finished season three, really hit a stride. So it was like getting back at it because we knew we, like, season three, you started seeing, like, the guests were getting bigger and uh, the sketches were getting better. And so we kind of knew we had something for season four. So it was just basically getting back at it. And if you look, season four has not failed. You know, we see nothing about last year's guests. We got Denzel, we got Pusha T, we got Michelle Yo. We have guests that when we tell people these are the guests on our show, people are like, yo, they're starting to take us serious now if they were fronting on the show before. So, you know, it's just like just keeping that energy going, just like barreling through and just making the show as fire as we know we can make it. And digital, man, like they, the digital team mm-hmm. is so talented and they gave them more resources and more time to really do a bunch of, you know, dope stuff. So, like, the happy hours that have been coming out have been phenomenal. Killing you know it. What I mean? People love those. Shout out to the digital gang, you know what I mean? Tawanda Rainey, Rob, Dean, I <laughs> list names, 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 names. But mm-hmm. now they got more budget. They got a little more room to maneuver. So they're yeah. creating arts. What was, like, a moment where you felt that kind of shift? Like, oh, people are inviting us to things. Oh, we're getting nominated for things. Like, when... Can you say if there was a moment when you noticed that shift happening? You know, once politicians started coming on our show, it became yeah. a major stop for presidential nominees. Mm-hmm. Like, we were having conversations with people who possibly decide the future of the nation. At that point, it's like, I mean, you can't talk to me the same way you were talking to me in 2016. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it didn't change. Don't ask me for ID when I'm buying beer. You know who I am. I know Joe Biden. But you know, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's like literally like that. The show becoming like a must stop on the camp, mm-hmm. like on your like campaign trail or whatever. Like that was an early indicator of like, yo, this is an important show and people need like mm-hmm. people are coming to the show for a certain, you know, voice and a certain demo and, and, and all that. But that really kind of like, oh, OK, mm-hmm. Kirsten Gillibrand wants to come up here and take us to Troy and like day drink. OK, and cook us eggs. Kirsten- yes. <laughs> Well, yeah, talk to me about when, when an opportunity like that arises. Is it like, I, I assume you take every guest super seriously, but that is like, all right, do you guys come up with a different strategy when you're talking to a politician? You know, it was just trying to find a way to make it natural and not make it pandering. 
Because the whole thing is like, a lot of these politicians, you knew from the jump, they were not making it. So it's just like, are we wasting people's time? Are they just using us to talk to like the urban community? Like little things like that. But then there's also like, how can we make it so it doesn't suck? Like how can mm-hmm. we make it part of the show and make it fun? So like, you know, like someone with Pete Buttigieg, there's only but so much you can do with him. And we took him to a park and we drank with him. Dude, I mean, like, what else do you want us to do? Like, I mean, that worked out. But people were upset about that. But I'm just like, yo, fam, that's Bodega Boys. That's what we do. We would drink in a park. So mm-hmm. if we're going to talk to someone, have a discussion, that's a natural environment for us. So it was always like that. It was like kind of trying to, try to take the politician out of their um, comfort zone and get them to a place where they couldn't just talk about talking points, where they had mm-hmm. to have an actual conversation and people could see who they really were and not just who their press secretary was telling them to be. Right, yeah. exactly. And this is not like a shot at like other shows, but like they would go into those situations kind of like knowing, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. a, like I want to say all late night shows aside from ours do like pre-interviews and let's talk about what we're going to talk about. And that's not our vibe at all. Our vibe is very yeah, like well, off yeah. the cuff, very casual, humanizing. You don't want to, you don't want someone in there like, you know, doing it with the same, you know, shout to Chris Hayes, that's the homie from school. But you don't want someone in there talking about, oh my God, the GPA of inflation in the Ukraine is affecting the price of the global car. You're like, no, 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 that's not what our show is. That's <laughs> not what our show is. It's bad Italian accents, very problematic uh, penis jokes, and maybe some drug references from the Bronx. You're not getting more than that. You're not getting less than that. But that's what you tuned in for. I am curious, uh, like, has there ever been someone or when you guys were getting into the late night space, were there ever people trying to push you down a more traditional path? Like, oh, do the pre-interview or do this, have this kind of guest. Were there people trying to do that or were you able to kind of always shield the show from that? Well, because we were on CBS and uh, Stephen Colbert called us the N-word. So there was that. Yeah. No, I just made that up. No, no, no. No, 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 nothing like that happened. No, no. No, that's normal on CBS. That's normal. That happens all the time. That's uh, that's like that tradition. No, um, I think the whole thing was people respected the energy me and Miro have and no one ever wanted to get in the the way of that. So Mm. no one ever was like, yo, do that. Like, I mean, the most we did was get writers. And as you see, you know, shout out to our writers. We love them. (laughs) And they help with the sketches and everything. But the A block is just us. So it was like people never wanted to, like, get in the way of that natural flow, that natural dynamic. So there was never a pre-interview kind of thing. And also, we don't even know how to do a pre-interview. Like, we come (laughs) up with the questions during the interview. On the spot. That's something people think the questions are written ahead of time. No. We're literally coming up with those questions on the fly. And that's why sometimes you'll see... Like, a question will lead to another question, another question, like, four questions away. We're doing all that off the top of our head. And I'm saying that again, that we should get an award for that. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Hello? There are... There, There's I, no cheat I mean, sheet. Truly... There's no cheat sheet. Like, oh, oh, this has gotten awkward and silent. Let me go to my cheat card. No. You got to be there. You got to be in the moment. You got to perform. Mm-hmm. No one in late night does what you do, I would say, in terms of like just coming up with stuff on the spot, except for maybe in moments and in interviews. But you mentioned like your writing staff and, and you have like things on the show. Talk to me a bit about your process with your team. Like, do you guys go on retreats? Do you ask people like to go around the room and say, like, answer questions? Like, what's your process with your writers? Yeah, you know, it's simple. Like we we get together like on a weekly basis and, you know, writers come up with pitches 
we look at them, we're like, you know, we get in, in a Zoom or in like a chain and we're just like, yo, this is dope, but let's do this instead of this or let's tweak this like this or, you know what I mean? So it's just like a collaborative process. And it's easy, man, because it's like the writers are good. You know what I mean? We get good pitches and all, you know, it's just kind of like adding our sauce to it. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and you get magic. I was also thinking about your like, your writers in terms of the influence that the show has had on Late Night already. We're seeing people like Z-Way, who used to be a writer on your show. Now she has her own Late Night show. What's it like seeing that influence on the Late Night space? Oh, that's great. Shout out to Z-Way. That's the homegirl. That's my homie. Like, I was just at the premiere party for her new season. Just to see that, because, like, I remember when I followed Z-Way on Twitter, just because she was funny. So now to see that, I followed her, and now all for our show, she has her own late night show going into season two. It's just like, we have an eye, and we can see the future. And, you know, shout out to other networks. We've been doing this for a minute. We've been telling people Cardi B is next. We've been naming people who are next in the zeitgeist, and people have not been taking this seriously. So that, like, have this proof of concept now, it's just like, yo, watch out. These guys know what they're doing. Like, we're not in the late night because we don't know what we're doing. Like, there's a reason we're here. And, like, follow our vision and follow our voice. And that's what people like, that authenticity. And the fact we know what we're talking about and we can see things before they come. We've had people on our show way before they hit. We had Lizzo on our show before anyone knew who Lizzo was. So it's just like, that's what you come on our show for. You're going to experience and meet people you do not know and who are not on your radar, who should be on your radar and are going to be on your radar in a couple of months. So get in early. Yeah. We had Cardi B when she was releasing Gangsta Bitch Volume 1. Preach. That's that. You know what I'm saying? We knew Cardi B when we were all in the streets. We were all in the Bronx jumping turnstiles. Hi, Bridge. What up? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I remember that as such an iconic moment. And I went back and watched like a piece of that interview. And I was like, wow, they've all come up so much from this It's moment. so wild to look at it now. Like, like now, that, and I mean, I, no jokes, but like, if you're a little kid from the Bronx and you see the three of us, like, that gives people inspiration because, like, no, like, you know, you know, like, J-Lo, Fat Joe and all that stuff. That was before their time. This was, like, four years ago. So people were just like, yo, if y'all made it, yeah. I can make it. So, and you always meet people and they're like, yo, you always represent the Bronx. Thank you for what you do. You meet older people who was like, yo, y'all not afraid to tell people y'all from the Bronx. And, like, young kids are just like, yo, if y'all did it, I could possibly do it. Will they? We don't know. But this we put it out there. It's up to you. Yeah, 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 manifest, manifest, you know what I'm saying? Whatever the, like, the cool kids are saying, sage your room. But now, <laughs> put on your vision board. You know what I mean? Put it in your dream catcher. You know, but to that point, like, it's 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 true. And, like, you see somebody like, you know, like us and, like, Cardi, they like, we haven't changed who we are, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, like, we're, we're the same people. Like, obviously, you change and you grow, but, like, Cardi's still, like, you know, she's still got the accent, she's still, like, she got joints with K-Flock, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Cardi's still tweeting reckless on Twitter. That is the most Bronx thing I've ever seen. That's what we do. That is what we do. We do not know how to do Twitter. We search our names and we threaten people. <laughs> <laughs> and who was somebody who was the most, who, like, had, I mean, I guess maybe it was Quinta, but who had the biggest reaction of, like, oh, man, I'm, I'm sad that this is done. Ooh, we get that a lot, but I think a lot. Michelle Yo, because I feel like yeah. she doesn't get a chance to have fun in interviews. All her interviews are very stoic. They're very ah, and like no. you can see during the interview, she got comfortable with us and she was just chilling with us. Like the the fact the you know if you seen the movie The Hot Dog Hands, okay. the fact that she is like a world renowned actress, she's gonna probably go down as a legend, 
and she let us like rub her face with the hot dog hands. Like, the temple <laughs> massage. Mira exactly. giving her a temple massage. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. That right there. That's and then you know, like as two interviewers, when you see the person you're interviewing get comfortable like that, that makes your day. Because then you're like, yo, we got this. We got this. Then you can ask whatever question you want. They're, they're never, we've never had an interview with someone like clams up or doesn't want to talk, but when you really get them comfortable, and it's just like, when, it's like when at the end, we always have to make up an excuse like, yo, we're out of time. Because the people really are like, yo, we could go for another hour. And I'm like, the show is only 25 minutes. Like, relax. Like, <laughs> we got to do our A block. Like, yo, David Letterman is a great example too. Like, he literally would not leave. He, he demanded a crew hoodie. He was like, I want a hoodie, not the merch store stuff, like the crew stuff. He wanted the real stuff. So <laughs> shout out to him. And like, even after the interview, he's talking to us backstage because he had so much fun. Because he said the show we do is the show he's always wanted to do. And you saw it come through in the interview. And he was just so comfortable. And you can see he was just smiling, having the time of his life. And he still stays in contact with us because, listen, we're going to be having him back on the show. But that was, you know, we've, all our interviews are great. But that interview was like one for the books. Like, that was the one we really was like, yo, we made it. Yeah, that one that one was really great, and I was I was actually going to ask about him next, but you what you answered was way better than what I was even going to ask. But I love that you guys are still in touch with him. Do you guys hang out with David Letterman? Have you? Uh, no, he's an old man, out? so we can't yeah. hang out with him. Like, like, all right, let's draw a line somewhere. Like, yeah, he's also <laughs> tremendously rich. You really want me dragging <laughs> David Letterman to Midnight's in Williamsburg? I don't think that's safe for anybody. It's for it's for on, it's for the best for him. Listen, if you see me but, and David Letterman and Mason on Bedford, something's gone very wrong. Come on, man! <laughs> Speed David Letterman out here at the mall off edibles and eating Chick Fil A. Like, yo, Dave, like, I think our Uber's here. Get in, bro. We're going to Zero Bond. I heard Eric Adams is there. Yeah, it's gonna be lit, oh bro. Okay, what do you guys think of Eric Adams? What do I think of Eric Adams? I have to watch this carefully because you know, you see how Hollywood Deans is going. I'm gonna be in a photo with him within the next month. Like we know it. He just be pop. Okay. And it's not even I'm going places. He's gonna pop up in my house. He might pop up right here. Like I, I got the door locked. I'm scared. Hey, how you doing? You know how little kids be like, "Yo, daddy, there's something under my bed." That's how every New Yorker feels about Eric Adams. He might show up at your baby's house. He's gonna just show up like, "What's up?" Like you just see me. He's like, "WYD." I'm like, "No, no." It's like Candyman. If you look in the mirror, you see Eric Adams three times, he'll show up behind you in a pair of hard bottoms. Like, yo, wh wh where are we going? <laughs> but, um, no, like, I couldn't resist asking. He's he's the mayor, and it's like, but he's also the mayor by basically default because no one voted because of COVID. And like, how can you be proud of that? So everyone's like, oh, why would you vote for him? So we, we didn't really have a choice. Like, Also, um, the red choice voting, did they introduce that for him? It feels good that New Yorkers are now picking um, good candidates that make great sketches for SNL, because that's what's important. Not who actually runs the city, but just, you know, who can Pete Davidson play on a Saturday night? So uh, That's right. Who has who has bad veneers that we can make mm -hmm. jokes about? <laughs> and that's what New York is about. <laughs> just on that note, you mentioned Letterman hanging around. And just kind of while we're on this politician wave, I, I heard you guys say that President Obama also kind of hung around after his interview and just wanted to chat with you guys. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and interviewing him. Oh, that was he cool. knew us. That he was knew us. That was like, he came in and he was just like, so you got four kids, huh, Meryl? What's but he knew us in a way. It wasn't like he just had Secret Service Google us. Like, clearly he's watched the show. Like, he, he knew us. And, like, it, you could see he was, like, proud of us. And the way he talked of it was very fatherly. And it was just, like, kind of just, like, it's very earnest. And, like, you know, you got to see, like, why people always say Obama's, like, the coolest guy in the room and everything. 
And it felt really good because, you know, you got a secret service lined up around the room ready to shoot you if you reach in your pocket too fast. So he was just like, yo, you my guys, this is good, whatever, whatever. He took a couple too many digs at my Knicks. Don't like that. But you know what? We get past that. Cause you know what? Our book outsold his. It did not. That's right. It did not. It did not. <laughs> The the <laughs> asterisk at the end. It did not. Editors it note. Did not. <laughs> but <laughs> Mara, how was like, it for you? I'm like, man, you wrote a Harry Potter book about your life, bro. It's just eighteen hundred pages. Goddamn. Do you guys have any? Um, I mean, you've had like everyone on the show. Do you have dream guests or dream like things to do? Well, actually, first dream guests. Who are the dream, dream guests? guests now? Yeah. We could interview anybody. Like we, we want to talk to anybody. Like we could have Warren yeah. Buffett on, and like at the end of the interview, who have like a gold chain and a do rag. Like we just want to <laughs> just talk to whoever's out there, whoever will come on the stage. And what I love is like when we get like the more I want to say esoteric, like the guests that you think would never be on our show. Yeah. So someone like Martha Stewart or someone Glenn like Close. that's just yeah, like someone so out of circle that it doesn't make any sense. But when you see it, Gia's interviewing them, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Just one quick question. Um, we mentioned like sort of at the top, like how much the show has evolved. And I wanted to give a shout out to the set, the production design, because I love it. I feel like it's evolved so much. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the aesthetic of the show? Oh, yeah. I mean, like we're the Bodega Boys. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was... Like, at first it was like, yo, is it too on the nose to sit in front of a bodega? And then it was just like, nah, it's not. That was the, our school of comedy. You know what I mean? Like, being outside with your friends, roasting, you know, it, and the lighting and everything else. A lot of thought goes into that. So shout out to the lighting crew, set design, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, like, just the in- turning and actually turning the interior of that bodega. Because before it wasn't like, uh, there was no space in there. It was just like a facade. But then turning that into like an interview area that really like it hits and it feels so good. Like when like when Denzel walked in there, he's like, like most a lot of guests that are familiar <laughs> with bodegas walk in there and they're like, yo, this looks like a real bodega. Like y'all really <laughs> Wow, okay. Because that's what we're going for. Shout out to, you know, Dave Drewski and the rest of the production crew. They really encapsulated what we were trying to do. We were trying to get the feel of basically people in the bodega having the conversation. Now it seems like, it's like we're allowing two milk crates outside of the bodega just pontificating about stuff we don't really know about, but stuff we kind of heard about. So, you know, and you could see like the growth from the different studios we have and even season four, little things like lifting the chairs, backlighting the actual bodega window, these little subtle effects that we, you know, as an average person, like I never see that. I'm always facing the camera like this. I do not see what's behind me and neither the mirror. But, you know, shout out to JD and all our, everyone that works on our staff. They do these subtle twerks and, like, we're getting all these compliments from fans and from, like, Showtime and everyone. Because these little things, these people know how to make TV. So these little differences are making the show better and bringing it to a higher level. And that's, you know, with the guests being on this level and the show being like this level, we're killing it this season. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess uh, last question, I'll wrap up with this. Um, when you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but when fans like longtime fans come up to you and see you on the street and want to talk to you, what is it that they say? What is it that they want to talk to you guys about the most? Man, it's a lot of like a lot of like, yo, I'm proud of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's 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 like a it's like a healthy mix of like, yo, I'm from the Bronx, too. I'm from the I'm from Queens. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm, from, I'm a New Yorker. And when I see you, I see me. It's some of that. It's a lot of like, yo, thank you for like making me laugh at the end of the day. I had a long day. I had a long month. I had a long year. I had mm-hmm. a long COVID lockdown. You know what I mean? Like 
all this stuff, like, and just bringing like that little, that little of joy, you know what I mean? In, in, in people's lives, like that's that's you can't put a price on that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's as corny as it may sound, you can't. Because yeah, you on social media and like you don't interact with the fans, you interact with the dickheads and the haters. Because those are the people who stand out. You know, you'll have like a post about an interview and you'll have twenty thousand likes, and you just have one person like this. These niggas is corny. That person stays in your head all day if you allow it. So when you meet the fans in real life, it's none of that Twitter stuff. It's none of that Instagram, social media, hate stuff. These people have general love for you, and they tell you what you did for them. So you'll have people, and it'd be wild. People be like, yo, you got my mother died. You got me through that. Um, I had cancer. You guys got me through that. Like, That's what keeps you going. When you see what you've done for the fans, that is what makes you go back and you know, like, give your all when you get down inside the show. So that's always fun. That like no matter how bad you're feeling or how down you are, when the fans come up to you, that recharges your battery and that makes you want to, you know want to make you do another one. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm delighted to speak to you, but sad it's on this occasion. <laughs> I just watched the finale for the second time and it, oh my it, was, God. it was it was good catharsis. I really needed that, but I'm gonna need to talk through this with you. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, first off, I'm so happy you directed it. I had read something saying you weren't gonna direct any of the final season's episodes, but how did it feel four years after you directed the premiere to be closing out this chapter on the birds? also directing the finale. It was it was a little bittersweet because uh, obviously it's something that we all loved was coming to a close. But the sweet part was that we uh, we felt like we had maybe gotten fairly close to this pretty ambitious target we were all trying to hit at the beginning, which was, um, you know, something that is dramatic, but has maybe a flash of funny, maybe here or there, but something that's bleak but might have some kind of uh hope in 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 a weird sort of opaque way uh something that is cinematic and a slow burn but yet really compelling um and a, a good narrative drive i mean there was you know there was there was some some specificity to it we got close i think and i'm really proud of us uh for all doing that 
Well, it, it is such a tonal balancing act, especially with the finale, because as dark and as criminal as these characters are, and as sad as the outcome is for Ruth, there's something weirdly uplifting about the sanctity of like family and marriage, and I guess how, how they hold those values. How long were you prepping to direct the finale? I'm curious how long you were thinking this out. You know, obviously a lot longer than um, than another director might because Chris and I were talking about the ending of the show even before the final year started. So there was a, a lot of sort of macro thought um, for quite a while before the technical pre-production, you know, the prep of it started for, you know, all the micro stuff about two weeks before we started shooting. But the thematics of that ending uh, and the mechanics of that ending from a plot standpoint were kind of in our in our minds much earlier. And um, I've got a real light touch, uh, if, if any, even on the writing. Um, they don't they don't need my dumbass mucking that stuff up. So I, I just kind of waited to see what what Chris landed on in how the plot and the story was going to reflect some of the thematic stuff that we were talking about with respect to what kind of bill should the birds pay at the end of this thing? What, how do we want to end this? Do they want to, we want them to get away with it or not get away with it? Um, if they don't get away with it, should we feel that there's some good news in it somehow? Or if they do get away with it, should we feel that there's some kind of bad news to that somehow? What's, what's the mix? And, um, I really think they came up with a with a pretty cool way to do that and in a way that was consistent with what they had done with all the rest of the stuff uh, leading up to that and how disciplined they are about being somewhat measured about, well, there's violence, but is it done in an interesting way? There's, there's bad behavior, but is there some guilt associated with it? Is there, there's always some kind of hopefully counterbalance to to what they're doing and uh and i think they did that really well with final events right there were so many layers to it i was really really shocked by the ending but i love the dialogue the dialogue did such a good job of when you know this this episode will be airing at the end of may so these are spoilers if you haven't seen the episodes yet but the way the private detective says i have it notes somewhere here. He talks something about uh, how you don't get to do X, Y, and Z and get away with it. And the world doesn't work that way. And, and, uh, and Laura's character says, um, since when? You oh, know. so good. Yeah. How long did you know that, that Wendy and Marty were going to stay together? Because I, after the first batch of episodes was almost hoping that Marty left. Wendy seemed so reckless in her actions. And the, these episodes did a, a great job of sort of gelling that back together and getting us back on board with Wendy. But I'm curious how long you knew that they were going to end up together. I knew the whole time, mostly because I wasn't told otherwise. You know, that would have been a very significant thing that Chris would want to discuss with me and with Laura well before we'd ever read it in a script, because you'd want to sort of backfill some of that as a lead up to it. But he's been very clear from the beginning that this is ultimately about family, this show, and um, they're putting each other through the ringer to test the 
the strength of that marriage and, you know, challenges um, that folks like you and me wouldn't do because we're, we're not on a TV show, you know, like you got to, <laughs> you got to make some real mistakes and do some pretty bad behavior to expect to grab the attention of us normal folks that are watching the television. So I knew that they were going to continue to really challenge each other with their, their bad decisions. Marty starts this whole thing off in season one by leading her down a path of problems. And she stayed with him. She obviously did something that was pretty tough for Marty to deal with too, but not dissimilar from hundreds and thousands of other marriages. So I knew that there was going to be something that she was going to equally challenge him with towards the end as far as a, a, a career path, a life path, a, an ethics path, uh, this sort of really testing the bounds of, you know, do the ends justify the means? And she really does dress up her decisions in a, in a pretty justified way, I'll, I'll say in quotes. Um, but she's as clever and as intelligent as Marty is and consequently can talk herself into doing some pretty bad things with an eye on a more ethical prize downstream. Um, and he follows her in that direction. And, and um, the ending, uh, I'll leave it up to the audience to decide whether it seems like, you know, harmony and health is, is, is in the next episode that we're not doing uh, or the next season that, that you know, it, it we're not doing. But hopefully a good ending will imply some future that, uh, that's satisfying. Do you have any thoughts on what Marty and Wendy's next chapter is? Yeah, I, I I would bet you that they'll go up to Chicago and they'll they'll test this theory of hers, which is have we acquired enough political capital to put into play some things that will help folks. Um, and, uh, you know, acquiring that capital was messy, um, but will the ends justify those means? And so they'll try that. My, my assumption is that while they're, they're, they're smarter now than when we first met them, I still feel like their hubris and their arrogance will continue to trip them up. I think humility would probably guide them towards some better decisions, but I don't think they're there yet, uh, you know, unfortunately. And and Marty Marty's relationship with Ruth has been one of the highlights of the series for me. I just love that platonic dynamic that you don't get to see really explored that much. He's something of a mentor, maybe a little bit of a father figure to Ruth. Can you talk a little bit about what that relationship has meant to you through the series? And what's been interesting to explore? Yeah, um, you know Marty's relationship with Ruth. You you said it. It it is it is definitely a little bit of a um, kind of a do over for him. You know he's got somebody there that he could shape and help out of what is a criminal situation. You know where he he finds her and sort of this criminal family, and but yet he does end up kind of dragging her into a different flavor of criminality. So he's not you know he's failing again as a as a as a paternal guide or a mentor. I think they both were, were a little bit better from it, but not completely fixed. 
and then my relationship with Julia just personally um, was just, you know, fantastic. I, I just I, I just couldn't like her more as a person, as a as an actor. She and I had an incredible collaboration with this whole thing. And and I loved what she taught me. I hope I taught her some stuff. And it was never, ever a problem. It just, everything was always so fun and friendly and supportive and trusting. And anytime I had a chance to direct her was just pure joy. And anytime I got a chance to act with her it was also just immediately, you know, there was a, there was a connection there. And she got what I was trying to do with Marty, and I really got what she was trying to do with Ruth. And those two things just braided perfectly. In these final episodes, we see she hits the jackpot in terms of certain circumstances. Her being entitled to Wyatt's bit of the stakes is was a genius twist mm. I didn't see coming. Um, but we see her getting her criminal record expunged. She comes so close to getting out. And Marty, my, he gives her the chance. He says, I have a guy. You can change your name. And it's this beautiful exchange. She says, no, I want to keep my name. I like it. I think Marty says something to the effect of, I do too. And then she, she dies. And if she has to die, I'm glad she's doing it, standing her ground. Right. She's unafraid. But can you talk about grappling with that scene and having to direct that, the death of such a beloved character? Yeah, and that that's something that, that Chris was really um, passionate about, was making sure that if we're going to kill a beloved character, we better do it in a way that the fans of that character can feel good about. And uh, and a lot of it really was that, was literally her standing um, and, and, and also metaphorically sort of standing her ground, you know, and, and going out on, on her terms and, and literally asking for it. That's just consistent with Ruth. And um, what was really fun was talking with Julia about how to kind of navigate what Chris had given us, which was giving her a moment of fear and realization of what was coming and then giving her the room to transition to acceptance and almost kind of turning it into uh, a good thing that, you know, well, let's kind of do this. And, and perhaps if we could see inside of her mind, would we see that she's shuffling through images in her life that while, yes, it was short, she did get some of the things done, maybe a lot of the things done that she wanted to do and, and wasn't really sure if she was capable of doing. Maybe it, yeah, it was a sprinter's life, but did she hit, extend the metaphor, you know, to kind of hit the, the finish line uh, in a winning position. It was, you know, brief, but she won. You know, obviously we don't flash into her head and we don't have the dialogue that says all that, but I hope you see in her performance, um, maybe a flash of that, maybe just enough to give the audience a, a taste to kind of motivate that, that thought so that you could find acceptance with it as a, as an audience member, like she does as a, as a character. That was, that was the intention. And, uh, there was some aesthetics about what we found ourselves in that night with the way the headlights were lighting her, the fact she was in white and the killer was in black, the fact that we had a lot of wind that night. There was something kind of 
mythic or gothic or tragic, you know, sort of Shakespearean about like there, there was something kind of weighty about it that, that matched the, the plot moment of it all, I think. And, uh, we got lucky. Right. Was was there any part of you that's sad or you're just so full in director technical mode, you're not even thinking in those terms? I mean, if that death had come even an episode earlier, it would have been really sad because then we couldn't have done the last episode with her. But the fact is that she died on the last episode. So, you know, we all were dying. Everybody died in that episode, basically, mm-hmm. you know, so there wasn't that feeling of, of loss of, oh my God, now we got to do the show without her. It was nice that the way the schedule worked out, it was the very last scene we filmed. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. When we were done with that scene, that was a wrap. And so that was also kind of interesting because while everybody wanted to kind of be sad and, and also be happy and congratulatory and huggy and kissy and I'm going to miss you. And you know, it was, you know, six in the morning and the sun was coming up and everybody still had to wrap out all their equipment, load the trucks and get home. So it was sort of like, I love you, but I'll talk to you at the wrap party, you know? So it was, it was, it was an interesting, it was really fun. Uh, There's a great moment, dramatically great moment for Marty a few episodes earlier in the episode Laura actually directed where Marty just loses. an incredible job with that? Such a good job. I think it's my favorite favorite episode of the season, I think. I I love the ending. I love the music cue. Um, Todd Rundgren is so good. But Marty totally loses it in traffic and beats the shit out of another person. And I was glad he got that moment, that tension release. But I'm curious what it was like for you, because you've played Marty so coolly and calmly. He's always the smartest sort of person calculating inside. But finally, you get this great show of aggression. What was that like? It, it was, it was, and it was on purpose, too. Like, I remember when, when Laura, you know, she was talking to me about prepping for the episode. She's like, I'm so excited. It's like, Marty finally loses his shit. You know, this is going to be uh, great. And I was, you know, because it was important. It was, it was on purpose that I play the character in such a way where there's so much fire. There's so much, um, there's arson all over the place uh, in, in, in our show. And you do need one firefighter, you know, in there. Otherwise <laughs> it's all, it's all flame. And you're just like, uh, enough. So I was always trying to be that element of the recipe from the very first episode and try to be somewhat of a calm center, some somewhat of a non-hysteric center for everyone to be able to be crazy. And then that episode, uh, there's an opportunity for Marty to finally kind of release the valve a little bit. And, um, and that was, that was fun. That was cool. And it was, again, it was done in a way that was pretty measured and disciplined. It wasn't sort of the, the easy stuff of like, oh, well, now he just starts shooting everybody and really loses it. Um, it's done in a way that is kind of lo-fi, low-tech, like beating some guy up with his fist, you know, at, 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 in road rage, you know, just being stuck in traffic with Todd Rundgren going on, you know, in the like it was, so it was still kind of a half measure that was kind of, kind of cool. And she just did such a great job directing that that sequence and also all the scenes leading up to it, like she'd done it a million times. It's amazing that that's her first thing. Can you talk a little bit about your partnership with Laura? I'm always so curious how it works when you're playing a married couple and you have this sort of innate 
understanding. You have this shared something that we as viewers don't know what it is, but we're we're seeing it in you. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit? Did you know her before the series? No, I, I didn't know her before. Well, we'd met maybe once before, but I uh, certainly didn't you know know her. But I knew that if we were lucky enough to grab her as the first piece of this build out that it would send a very clear message to the community um, and also to the audience eventually of what the show is and what it isn't. Um, you know, she lends just enormous credibility and pedigree to anything that she does and anything with a bag of money and a gun could go sideways quickly as far as quality and tone goes. And so I knew she would be a great declaration of of what we were shooting for. Um, and in fact, when I met with her for the very first time for this, it was at a restaurant that she and I ate dinner at last night for the first time since that very, very first meeting. And, you know, I'm in town, she lives here, I'm in New York um, to do, you know, the final screening of this thing. And so last night we had dinner and we literally were sitting at the table right next to where she and I sat that very first time five or six years ago. So it was really cool. But as far as uh, chemistry goes and the that sort of intangible dynamic that we as an audience really love when you see it, there's no secret strategy to building that. It, it's not di any different than anybody you work with or anybody listening works with or uh, not even just works with but just knows i mean when you meet somebody that you connect with somebody that you just kind of sorry to use the hippy dippy term but kind of vibe with you just know it's not something you say it's not something you ask it's just a vibe and from that place comes a great working relationship or a great friendship or a great marriage or you just know what they like and you know how they communicate and you know what you don't need to say but what you can share with a look or with body language or you just get it and usually that person's not an asshole usually that person is somebody that is great and you kind of you immediately recognize that you've just skipped about 12 dates and <laughs> you're off and running and we can talk in a shorthand now and how that manifests itself with acting is you just are already in rhythm so you can take a big big pause in the middle of your line for instance and you know they're not going to think you've forgotten your line they just get this is the way this person communicates and so therein fills this great acting kind of moment that you're connected with because you just kind of understand each other i guess is what i'm saying and so we got to do that with dramatic scenes with humorous scenes with long long scenes or really short scenes scenes with dialogue scenes without we just get each other and really 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 like each other and that's what let us kind of fight without any worry whatsoever that the other person is going to see some flare of anger or aggression inside the scene that's going to damage a relationship that's already fragile. The, our relationship is just so strong. We love each other so much that we could just be fucking terrible to each other on screen. And that was really, really fun.
Were you charting the relationship at all? Because it does go on such a roller coaster. There are moments where I was thinking they're absolutely going to split up. Marty's going to get sick of this. Or is it just you go script to script? Well, you knew there was just such shared desperation between the two of them that you knew that they they have to be yelling at each other. They're both screwed, but they're so reliant on one another. They both have so much on each other. They have two kids together. There's just, there's so much there that they have and that they've been through that it built so much elasticity. You could just stretch it wherever you wanted to go and they're just stuck. So um, that was helpful. You've been so involved with the show since the very beginning in terms of executive producing it, directing it, starring in it. What's this experience been like? Are you going to do it again? Yeah, I'd love to do something as good as this and maybe even harder or or with more scope or responsibility or what I don't know. I don't know what those things are. I mean, maybe, you know, my original goal was to direct all these episodes, but we couldn't because of time and budget. I'm going to um I'm going to start prepping about a month on something that's, you know, a big, huge, big budget movie with big stars and visual effects and all that stuff that I've, you know, another thing I've been asking for. And, uh oh, here it is. So I'm excited to challenge myself with that. And I'm nervous. I'm excited. And uh, so I just feel really fortunate. Well, Jason, thank you so much. I'm really going to miss the birds. But if, <laughs> if it had to end, this was a great finale. Um, so congratulations on it all. Thank you, Julie. Thank you very much. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back again on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at Vanity Fair with coverage of all of these shows and much more. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And you can sign up to text with us at subtext. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-746-3771. This episode was edited and produced, as always, by Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.